0: A radicalised, disaffected section of society seeking to disrupt. Looking back across a distance of a hundred years, it's difficult to imagine that some people once saw the suffragettes in that way. In today's episode, we investigate the suffragettes of East London. It's the 5th of December 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. This is Londonist Out Loud.
1: Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sight.
0: done the show now. Uh, So that's it. Thanks for coming there. Or we could carry on. Sarah Jackson and I have been chinwagging. We've covered most of the terrain now. We're here in East London. We're in Bow to talk about East London suffragettes. And we've we've kind of uh, done it. We haven't really touched on suffragettes yet, but we've been discovering the history of the Lord Morpeth, or I should say of Lord Morpeth. We're in a pub named after him just now. And why are we in this particular pub?
1: Um, the pub's actually right next to the East London Federation of the Suffragettes HQ, which was the Women's Hall on 400 Old Ford Road.
0: And what is notable about the uh, HQ at this stage?
1: <laughs> at this stage, it's it's not really there. It's, it's looking quite green and, and tree-like, um, but there's a little plaque on the side of the Lord Morpeth pub uh, wall commemorating the fact it was there.
0: Um, We have the book as an excuse to talk about the East London suffragettes. Now, of course, we've heard of suffragettes in several contexts, and people will be familiar with the rallies to get the vote early in the last century, certainly people chaining themselves to railings, and I guess Emily Davison going under the king's horse, and pretty much that might be the full extent of people's knowledge of the suffragettes. You've got a book here. Let's talk about the inception of the project, first of all, East London Suffragettes. Why did you write it? Why did you write it in such a hurry?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, it, it started life as a, as a festival, in fact, um, inspired by the person who was later to become my co author, um, who's a historian called Rosemary Taylor, who wrote a, a book about the East London suffragettes, which I read when I moved to London 10 years ago um, and was delighted to discover the, the suffragette sort of movement happening in, in my area in, in such a remarkable way. Um, and you know 1914 was when the East London Federation of the Suffragettes um, became a distinct organisation and was founded in Bow and so this year I thought it's 100 years why don't we have some sort of event to commemorate that and sort of raise awareness and tell their story so we started organising the East London Suffragette Festival which took place on the 9th of August this year Um, but in the Process of doing that, I was contacted by um, the History Press and said, "You know, do you, do you want to write a book about these these people?" And I thought, uh, "Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> that sounds great." Um, so I got in touch with Rosemary and said, "Would you like to collaborate?" Because she really was the expert um, on this subject and and had already done an enormous amount of original research. So um, we put together the book um, in probably about five months, I think. Um, wrote the whole thing, um, and I, I really took her existing research and the photos that she'd gathered from the International Institute of Social History where Sylvia Pankhurst's archive is kept um, and expanded it and did a little bit more kind of digging in the archives particularly using uh, their newspaper which was called The Woman's Dreadnought which is a just fantastically useful resource not just to learn about the suffragettes but to learn about the East End at that time.
0: We have in front of us your book, and uh, of course Rosemary's book here as well, which is called In Letters of Gold. And the picture on the front there is a, rather a haunting image. It looks at first glance like a, a woman at prayer, but it uh, may be something else—a position of submission, I would say. What is this book all about?
1: Um, Rosemary's book, In Letters of Gold, it, it really charts the origins of the East London Federation of the Suffragettes, who I may just call the Federation now, just to uh, make that <laughs> a bit quicker. Um, from their earliest days when they arrived in Bow which is 1912 and this picture on, on the cover of her book it's actually Sylvia Pankhurst kneeling on a wooden platform in front of their shop, which they just hired, which was a former baker's shop, which was at 198 Bow Road. For anyone who knows the area, it's sort of right opposite St Mary's Church in Bow. Um, it's now uh, a block of flats, like so much of East London, but it was there and it was a very busy, bustling high street at that time. Um, and what Sylvia's doing in the photo is she's painting votes for women on top of the shop in gold paint, um, which was astonishing, <laughs> apparently to the locals and there are other photos in the same series of a small crowd of people sort of watching her looking slightly perplexed
0: (laughs) quite the reverse of submission
1: (laughs) yes i would say so
0: (laughs) could you unpack the word suffragette what is the difference when we think of the different ways in which activist movements of women the different labels that they have uh, received or have applied to themselves what does suffragettes mean what are the nuances there
1: Well, suffragettes really emerged as a distinct movement to the women's suffrage movement, which had been going on in the UK since the sort of 1860s, really. It was a very long-lived movement at the point where the Pankhursts got involved. That's Emmeline Pankhurst, who is... The leader, really, of the creator of the suffragette uh, movement, and her daughters, Christabel, Sylvia, um, who went on to lead the federation in East London, and Adela, who doesn't play such a such a major role, but was still very involved, and. Basically, they were part of the women's suffrage movement, supporting organisations like the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, which was led by Millicent Fawcett, and a host of other smaller local suffrage societies. They were getting fed up, basically, um, in the early 20th century with the the speed of progress, which was basically none. Um, There was a lot of petitions, there were a lot of polite letters to MPs, but it was a reasonably safe sort of constitutional movement, and they favoured something a bit more dramatic. Um, so in 1903, they, they created the Women's Social and Political Union in Manchester with a group of other women that uh, were feeling the same about the suffrage movement. They weren't called suffragettes at that point. That came a few years later when journalist called Charles Hans referred to the activists of the Women's Social and Political Union as suffragettes in what was intended to be a demeaning, degrading word. They were delighted. They took it up themselves and it became a tremendous badge of honour. And when the East London Federation of Suffragettes split away from the the Women's Social and Political Union in 1914, they took the word suffragette with pride and was apparently much to the annoyance of Emmeline Pankhurst who rather felt that the WSPU owned it. Um, So that's kind of where the suffragette movement grew out from.
0: Was there something in the water then in uh, the the very, very first years of the 20th century that was bringing about this uh, sort of increased militancy or increased active activism?
1: I think that's right, and and certainly for the WSPU. The first few years they pursued many of the same tactics as the wider women's suffrage movement. It was only in 1906 that they became sort of militant. um,
0: I should check, is that an offensive term to your ear?
1: Militant? No, I'd no, I wouldn't say so. I, th- I think they were. Um, I, there's always a question around whether or not they should be described as terrorists, which I think is it's an interesting question. I, I think a lot of the activities that they pursued, although they took great care not to endanger human life other than their own, they were involved in arson. They set fire to, to letterboxes. They um, smashed windows they destroyed public property i mean these are acts i think of terrorism i think that their cause in this case was just
0: was terror caused
1: terror caused that's an interesting question i don't know it's so much of the press coverage which is what we have as a source to go on is trying to belittle and trivialize their efforts
0: silly little women causing a fuss
1: Exactly, silly little women. They were hysterical. There was lots and lots of mockery and an attempt to undermine them. So I think what that you don't really get then is a, an accurate picture of how much people were a, afraid. Whether they were they felt terrorised by these activities, they were certainly very annoying. And there's lots and lots of um, examples of actions taken to try and and manage these bothersome suffragettes whether that's passing legislation for example allowing force feeding for political prisoners in 1909 or in east london in bow the suffragettes were banned from using public halls civic halls to hold their meetings because they were seen as a as a, a troublesome force
0: so let's put our finger on it then what was it that made that particular period ripe for this kind of activity
1: well, that's a that's a big question. I think you need someone who's who's got a, a wider historical background than I have to answer that fully. I think it just seemed like a turbulent time, a time that was full it was full of political turmoil, turmoil and violence, where politics was very polarised. There was a lot of disruption in in Europe. There'd been wars and, and pogroms. There was a lot of immigration coming in, particularly through East London. I mean, that's. that's been fairly constant but there was for example a group of um, German anarchists that that moved into East London which disseminated anarchist ideas you've got the um, Marxist ideas and speakers Eleanor Marx and Rosa Luxemburg came and spoke in East London regularly Um, I think there's I, I don't have the answer to why that particular time
0: well, i kind of think you do from what you're saying and, and it also seems to be well on this show we've very often found ourselves talking about the benevolence of well-to-do victorians all sorts of things the bishopsgate institute a dear rachel kolsky friend of the show has taken us a number of times around bits of the east end and showed us good works of various women who were determined to make a change for the good of uh, all sorts of different groups and you can't help imagining that sort of spirit of rolling up one's sleeves and getting on with it overspilling spilling and maybe railing against the frustration of being put back in its place all the time but why don't you take us from there up until perhaps the start of the first world war
1: sure actually yeah that's an interesting connection that's just um you just prompted there which is perhaps the difference between some of those good works of the Victorians um, who came into East London to try and help I mean and and all very well intentioned I think um, and achieved really remarkable things and and sort of created sort of the charity sector sort of as we know it today
0: doesn't that seem a far weaker phrase the charity sector compared with what uh, what was going on then?
1: that's yeah I think that I think that's right and I feel that there is a movement from these charitable works these good works of sort of ladies who lunch going into East London and sort of trying to save people as both um, physically and spiritually um, And what I think you see emerging at the beginning of the 20th century is more and more of a political movement for social change. And what I think is really one of the things that drew me so strongly to the East London Federation of the Suffragettes is that they conducted um, relief programmes, sort of poverty relief programmes, uh, particularly when the war broke out. There was an enormous wave of unemployment and real... I mean, people who were living on the edge anyway were kind of pushed into the abyss. um, And they rolled out all kinds of interesting uh, operations to try and meet that need but it was never um, charity, it was never good works by lovely middle class ladies they, they led organised community action um, it was led by the members, they were largely self-organising in different branches um, and it just seemed so much more the spirit of the age that the local people were sort of filling in the gap really between You know what the state and what their employers could provide for them, Um, and of course there was there was lots of there were protests, there was campaigning, there was lobbying. They were militants, so it wasn't simply you know meeting the need it was also campaigning for structural change and that's one of the things i think is so brilliant about them
0: yeah that's one of the things that gets overlooked for quite uh, obvious reasons in that period of the first world war that the irish question was being asked in a very particular way at that point there was a lot of uh, very aggressive behaviour on both sides the unions were in full force and were going out on strike during the first world war which is one of the things that always alarms me the women's movement was on the rise. Well, in fact, that's one of the things that I often find quite difficult to swallow is the white feather connection with the women's movement. Having written about that, I find that rather disturbing and alarming. But you can see quite easily how it would come about from that fermenting political stew.
1: I think that's a classic example of the kind of polarisation that was taking place because the Women's Social and Political Union, which is led, again, by Emmeline and Christabel, which is Sylvia's mother and sister, um... Was became a fervently nationalist um, organisation, uh, changed the name of their paper from Votes for Women to Britannia um, and were very involved in supporting the propaganda and, and some of the shaming activities around conscientious objectors and, and men who, who didn't go to war. Whereas the East London Federation of the Suffragettes, um, while they didn't kind of declare themselves right at the, at the beginning of the war as pacifists, over the next two years, as the mood in the country changed, and as the kind of horrors of war became more well-known, widely known, um, they adopted a very radical stance of complete pacifism. They campaigned against conscription, they campaigned against executions for cowardice, they were, in the Dreadnought newspaper, they publicised cases of shell shock at a time when obviously this was still not a, a widely understood condition, and they were punished for it. They had won a lot of support from they even won some some small grants from um, the government while they were conducting their relief activities at the start of the war so those are things like distributing milk running um, cost price canteens so that people can have nutritious food um, uh, they opened a cooperative toy factory to provide jobs and a nursery where women could leave their children because um, obviously they are the the principal breadwinners at this time, most of the men off at the war or otherwise unemployed. They won a lot of support and accolades for that. But then as soon as they started to you know taking an anti-war line, they attracted some of the same kind of abuse and attacks that they had during the very militant era of suffragette activism. Um, so people throwing paint at them when they were speaking, storming the stage, being beaten up by the crowds and by the police and sometimes by the police allowing the crowds to Attacked women speakers and things like that, and women—they uh, were their offices were raided, you know, all kinds of all kinds of penalties like that. So you've got kind of this the suffragette movement at that time, which started off as a single organisation, in the Women's Social and Political Union, taking completely different paths um, in the face of the war. And I think it's this is part of why I want the to tell the story of the East London Federation to suffragettes is because it shows the enormous diversity of that movement.
0: Well, actually, that's something I want to jump on because in both the case of the suffragettes and the... Uh, the rest everybody else we're talking about them as though they're cohesive bodies and of course no political movement is ever quite cohesive and I'm presuming that there must have been a range of responses across society to them as well I'm curious for instance I wonder whether they found any support amongst men or amongst the establishment when they were simply campaigning for the the ideals that were important to them
1: oh yes absolutely I think it's something that has been well, I don't want to take anything away from the real hostility and the abuse and the attacks that suffragette activists um, received. There was also, there were a fair number of, of uh, male supporters. And from the very, very eminent and famous John Stuart Mill, um, who was, you know, led a lot of the women's suffrage work in the end of the 19th century through to, you know, various... Other sort of political figures um, in the Labour Party, the, the, the new Labour Party, Keir Hardie and George Lansbury, were enormously supportive. Um, and there was a men's league in support of women's suffrage, I can't remember exactly the name, but there were, so were organisations of men supporting um, the women's movement at this time.
0: Was that support garnered on the basis of this is the right thing to do or were there other uh, oh, veiled yes. interests that were going on there? <laughs>
1: I think a lot of it was just about um, principles of self-government and self-determination. I mean, the context of this is that, you know, from sort of 1832 onwards, the, the franchise has been extended, you know, inch by inch to sort of more and more categories of working men. At this time, working class men don't have the vote still, you know. it's it's So it's sort of, I think a lot of these uh, very principled individuals saw it as... Just part and parcel of the same question: uh, moving towards democracy, moving towards universal suffrage.
0: Yeah, that's something that always gets forgotten. Isn't it? I think Catholics also didn't have the vote still at that point.
1: I think so. Because
0: um, uh, what I, I guess I was driving at with my question was I wondered whether it's in the interests of, for example, the Labour uh, political movement to support uh, female suffrage because it's going to mean more votes for them.
1: That's a really, that's a really, really interesting point. And there's again, there's sort of there's lots of, it's a kind of prism you can see all the kinds of different facets in it on the one hand a lot of union activists were quite hostile to women's empowerment and women's rights because obviously women were moving into the workplace and taking up jobs that they felt belonged to men um and that that has that continued for several decades after the vote um but on the other hand the particularly the East London Federation of the Suffragettes they kind of they're Call for the vote for women was grounded in the reality of their members' lives. So that's working-class women, but also in their wider community. Um, and they, rather than saying just this is fair, end of you know this is why we need it, they took a very practical line and said you know we need the vote not only because it's fair, but also because it will give us greater leverage as a community to campaign for, to ask for things like decent housing for education, for decent wages, um, for health care, you know, all those things they didn't have. And so that's part of why these Sundan suffragettes built up this enormous community support, not just women, but also men. And there's accounts from the time which talk about their demonstrations and rallies being almost half men. Um, it's because it was seen as beneficial to the community as a whole um, if their women also had the power to vote
0: yeah do you know i think while while you've been talking you've managed to uh through the words you've been using there you've managed to shuffle things around in my head so that i um understand the difference i think tell me if i'm wrong with this between political empowerment which is at least the major part of what we're talking about here and how this issue would be looked at now which is more to do with rights
1: yes that's oh that's an interesting question yeah they um because obviously sort of human rights as a concept has got a very long history on one hand... Um, but a sort of short history in terms of its representation in international law. You know, it's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights at 1948. I can't remember. But, um, but so at of this time there isn't legal kind of human rights protection in the same way. But there is a sense absolutely of people having rights. Um, well,
0: and- but, but, but also uh, I, th- I think what I, was, what I meant was it's more to do with empowering individuals, whether it's oneself or someone else, to, to be able to effect change rather than there being a, a list of things to which one is entitled and which one's um, sort of ego, I suppose, obliges one to claim.
1: Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, OK, I see what you, I see what you mean. I, I absolutely think that, that's what they were... The East London Federation of the Suffragettes were always looking at the vote as um, a means to an end, as part of a wider struggle for equality, um, and they very much saw things like rights, not just as something people should have because they were entitled to it to be fair, but also tools that could be used to change the whole system. I, I feel there's a I think it's an old uh, feminist sort of women's lib slogan from the 70s which I think is really encapsulates what they were trying to do and they say we don't want a bigger slice of the pie, we want a different pie, <laughs> we want to change everything and they were really truly radical in their, the, the scope of that vision you know, um, and whereas I think some of the other arguments for the vote in other parts of the suffragette movement were were much more about sort of you know equal citizenship yeah an equal list of one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care Of rights that, that one has and not necessarily what is then done with those rights
0: um, So bringing us up to the break we could touch on the splinters and factions among the East End operation.
1: But just a sort of a word of caution that the main sources that we have are from the East End Federation newslet- newspaper and from Sylvia Pankhurst's memoirs um, and so they're obviously you know going to highlight sort of the positives the cohesion the solidarity um although she does document incidents where there were conflicts and there were challenges she's quite open about it all and one that really sticks in my mind is is very early on in the east end campaigns is when back when they were still part of the women's social and political union in 1912 one of the local suffragettes um a lady called melvina walker who describes herself as a docker's wife um and who lived in Limehouse, challenges Sylvia and says... Whenever there's going to be a an event or you're going to have speakers on a platform in East London, we want a local woman on that platform, not just someone from central London suffragette HQ. You know, we want, we want our voice to be heard because it's our neighbourhood. And Sylvia, you know, is delighted. She's, she's surprised she hasn't, you know, she feels bad that she hasn't addressed this before, but she, she absolutely welcomes that criticism. So there was clearly challenge and they were... A scrupulously democratic organisation, so they probably had to, you know, had long discussions about different issues and things like that. But there, certainly in the sources I was looking at, there isn't a great deal of evidence of, of rifts or conflicts.
0: Uh, which is never a good way to finish the first half of the show. What we want is there were loads, and we'll tell you more about them, but I don't think the history of the suffragettes is going to be crisis or conflict-free, and we'll be hearing some more of that, and indeed finding out about uh, Lord Morpeth, who we've been, we've been doing a bit of research on him. We can't make any actual connection between him and the pub named after him, but we'll be back in just a moment.
1: Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk and click through.
0: You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and with me, Sarah Jackson, the author of East London Suffragettes. We're in East London. We're near uh, Suffragette HQ, which was next door until it became grass. And uh, in (laughs) in front of me, we've got a picture of Lord Morpeth. And uh, if you were planning an exciting night out on the town, Lord Morpeth, judging by this picture, is not the fellow you would invite out with you. He looks uh, stern. He's in one of those photographs where he's been ordered to sit still for about 20 minutes while the exposure exposes. A few things about Lord Morpeth. Um, died in about 1865. In fact, we should, if we're going to do a biography, we shouldn't start with when he died. That's never a good way to do it. But he was heavily involved in Ireland, and we were trying to figure out what might have made a pub name itself after him. This pub was established in the 1850s, so it's quite possible that uh, it was named after him at around that point. We're not quite sure. He certainly seemed to have his finger in a number of bills to do with improving the lot of poor folk in various parts of the world uh, looking after disabled jewish people and so forth so it might have been a good cove that's about as close to it as we can get we have no evidence that he was ever here though he seems to have been in uh, west yorkshire and uh, northern ireland for quite a period of time so that's lord morpeth for you a condensed history of lord morpeth you can find out more on the uh, lord morpeth pub website www.lordmorpeth.com Now, the pub has recently changed hands, uh, about three weeks before us uh, recording this. And apparently, previously, it was the sort of place that uh, the average suffragette might not have approved of, which is to say that at the very least, it was almost uh, completely male and not as welcoming as a pub could be, perhaps. Well, all that's changed. They've changed hands and they've got a decent jukebox in and uh, the all-important pair of buffalo horns up on the fireplace i'm not really sure what that's all about but the place is wood panelled and pizza is cooking in the kitchen even as we speak it's a a good looking place come down here if you want to get a a craft beer and a nice slice of diavola speaking to one of the barmen and he's newly installed himself he was uh, relating to me a conversation he's had with one of the regulars who insists that underneath the pub there are blocked up tunnels and uh, this regular apparently thinks that the tunnels lead out to Victoria Park and kind of worm their way under uh, all the houses nearby. The park is about a block away so this is a substantial tunnel network we could be talking about here. We're not sure if this is a real thing though. I haven't had a chance to look down there yet. We've tried calling some of our historians who are likely to know about these things. Fiona Rule of course was uh, the first. We picked up the phone to. None of them available to tell us in time for this broadcast. It may be that we can get information on this in to the comments section but if you know anything about this we'd love to hear from you i want to know more are there tunnels under lord morpeth well back to uh, suffragettes and of course with the east london chapter of the uh, suffragettes we know some of the names we know the Pankhursts, of course there are bound to be other names that we don't know so much about but should and sarah jackson who should we be looking at when we think about east london suffragettes
1: well there are, i mean there are so many to choose from it it's really been one of the absolute pleasures of, of researching the book is, is getting to know this group of people who, who largely have been sort of forgotten. It's, it's very lucky we have the Women's Dreadnought newspaper and that we have Sylvia Pankhurst's memoirs, you know, otherwise we might not know much about them at all. Um, one of my favourites is a lady called Melvina Mil- Walker, um, who uh, was from Limehouse. She had been before she got married, uh, a lady's maid, um, and reportedly her Knowledge of of what went on in the big houses of rich people gave her a very cool confidence um, around her betters and there 's just some wonderful stories of her um, she was She was a really naturally talented public speaker um, Sylvia described her as um, some you know like a, a French revolutionary waving a bonnet rouge on the barricades you know in, when she was in full flood, um, she was an immensely popular speaker from across all different movements, and of course, there was an enormous amount of political speaking happening at this time um, and uh, she was also a popular delegate because one of the kinds of lobbying that the Southern Federation of the Suffragettes did was to democratically elect members of a delegation that would go and meet with a minister. And they met with the prime minister on one occasion, but they also met with, for example, you know, uh, president of the Board of Trade or, you know, sort of a person in charge of, of what passed for welfare at, at, at that time and then put their case to him. Um, and there's a wonderful example of Malvina Walker in a meeting with Walter Runciman, um, who was the President of the Board of Trade during the war, arguing for food price controls because the cost of living had just spiralled to a ridiculous point at the same time that this wave of unemployment had hit families in the east end Um, just
0: as an aside do you know whether that was because of scarcity of uh, foodstuffs or because of profiteering
1: that's a, yes, that's an interesting question. Um, again, I don't know enough about the background to say, but Sylvia certainly believed it was about profiteering. Um, and there was... Uh, one of the points they made in this meeting with Runciman is that they, their husbands worked on the docks and they worked in the warehouses and they could see the stores of food. They could see big boxes of sugar and tea and, and everything that they were being told now suddenly cost a fortune. Um, and Malvina... You know, they they set out their case to to Walter Runciman, who congratulated himself that uh, they hadn't yet reached panic prices. Melvina said, well, at your salary, they're not panic prices, but at 25 shillings a week, they are. And he mumbles oh, it's not a question of salary, and she bangs the table and says, it is a question of salary, which I think is a really lovely example of, you know, their fearlessness when dealing with these immensely powerful men, but also their acute understanding of the bigger picture of inequality. This isn't just about food price controls. This is about salary. This is about wage inequality. This is about class, you know. Um, so she's one, she's one of my favourites, but there's a, there's a lot of wonderful stories.
0: Is there an element here, and I really don't know whether this is a, a valid, uh, not even suspicion, a valid link I'm making in my mind, for uh, members of the suffragette movement at this time to be seeing themselves as figureheads for much bigger issues that, that go far beyond uh, just the, the lot of women?
1: I think, it was, again, it's one of those differences between... The Women's Social and Political Union um, and the Standard Federation of the Suffragettes, and that the Women's Social and Political Union were very, very focused on votes for women—not even really broader women's rights, just the vote—and in a way, that was a fantastically effective campaigning tactic. And they had a very, very simple argument um and they could focus all their energy and all their resources on, on achieving that whereas the London federation campaigned on a massive range of issues like decent housing equal pay um health care sort of uh, all kinds of things but they also allied themselves and joined coalitions with all kinds of other groups so you know uh, people calling for home rule for ireland and again in the war sort of campaigning against um conscription all those kinds of causes um and in fact, that's where the split between the two organisations really comes from. Um, that There's a meeting in January 1914 where Sylvia is summoned to Paris, which is where Christabel and Emmeline Pankhurst are residing at that time, to escape police persecution. Um, and Christabel informs her that they must become, the East London branch must become a separate movement. And um, the reason she gives is that uh, you are too much mixed up in other causes. We want our women to take orders and walk in step like an army. Um, that was very much the model. Very autocratic, but incredibly focused. And Sylvia had been speaking on platforms with James Connolly, who was very involved in uh, the Home Rule for Ireland movement and all kinds of other causes, and they just refused to tolerate it, and that's why they split. There's, you know, there were so many incredible women um, and men, I mean, but I've focused on the women involved with the East London Federation of the Suffragettes. One of them was uh, Julia Skurr, who was the wife of John Skurr, who was um, a political activist in the area at the time.
0: Yes, would well, well, no, I certainly know that name.
1: I don't know that I don't know much about him.
0: <laughs> I think there might be a school named after him. I think that might be where I'm hearing it.
1: It's all everywhere around here. Um, and people who know the area will know this. There's there's Hardy's, there's Lansbury's, there's Crooks, there's um, you know, Skurs, Montefiores, you know, all those estates, um, parks, public buildings are named after this this kind of crop of. of you know, largely Labour activists who, who were here, active at this time. Julia Sker was an Irish immigrant and she became very involved in supporting the Irish community during the Docker strike, um, helped to organise food for the children um, of families whose fathers, you know, were out on strike. She became a local councillor because weirdly at this time, although women weren't allowed to vote in national elections, they could vote in local council elections and they could stand as local councillors. So she became, she was on the... Um, I won't go too far into the welfare structure of the time, but um, to administer the Poor Law and give out what small amount of relief was available to poor families at that time, there was a, a committee called a Board of Guardians, and um, they managed the workhouse and they also issued poor relief. You know, it was in, in minuscule sums, so this isn't in no way a, a full welfare state. Um, but Julius Kerr was involved um, as a as a poor law guardian in in Poplar for um, many, many, many years and worked incredibly hard to reform the workhouse um, and to reform St Clement's Hospital, which is where a lot of, in in Mile End, where a lot of poor people went. Um, She was also the, she sort of led the delegation to meet with Prime Minister Asquith in 1914 and read out a fantastic speech about how um, women, uh, it's unwise and unjust to legislate without the help of women when you are dealing with... Um, areas w- in which women are sort of the primary people who are being affected and so you know education of their children like the housing you know the food prices and their argument was that how you're trying to this because this is of course to a liberal government who for the time were reasonably progressive she's saying you're trying to improve the lot of the working person and you're doing it without women you're mad <laughs> you know um, so i think she's a tremendously inspiring figure
0: if she were about politically active today, as I can only imagine she, she would be if she were around, uh, would she be fighting the, the exact same fight?
1: This is one of the things that, that's kept occurring to me again and again as I looked into the, the stories behind the book, is is just how similar um, the, ch- the challenges are now and they were then. And people are still calling for exactly the same stuff, decent wages, equal pay for women, equal pay gap hasn't closed yet, you know. Um, And one of the most, uh, you know, telling parallels, I think, is between the work of the East London Federation of the Suffragettes um, and the Focus E15 Mothers uh, campaigning group in Stratford. Um, I think there's a lot of similarities, not just in the cause, because the suffragettes were very involved in in calling for better housing, um, reflecting the priorities of their members, um, but also in their approach in terms of their... Uh, self-representation as working women, there's not a charity intermediary, there's not a lawyer or a journalist that's speaking for them, they're speaking themselves directly um, and carrying out high profile direct action um, which is putting them sometimes on the wrong side of the law and the, you know they're they're, ma- they're using the media storm that that's generated to put pressure on the the official representatives the councillors um in in Newham
0: it, it strikes me and of course we've got to be very careful because we're broadcasting about how we handle what could be said here but one might reach for what you said earlier about the lengths that uh, to which the suffragettes were prepared to go in order to uh, make their opinions felt yeah and of course if uh, i think if people were if women were to do the same sorts of things today on the same sorts of scale the scale of anti-terror legislation that could be brought to bear upon them and and indeed we've seen it brought to bear on people who've done uh, nothing that, that i would think of as an act of terrorism it's truly uh, frightening isn't it
1: i would say I would say so absolutely i think they record uh incidences of of police brutality um and We know one of the most famous examples is is Black Friday, which is is, earlier, I think it's 1910, I can't remember. But that involved the whole suffragette movement. Um, And there were direct orders from the Home Secretary to the police to delay arrest... Which meant that the women who were involved in a kind of melee um, in in the crowd were being really savagely beaten and and sexually assaulted by the crowd, and the police weren't intervening. They could have arrested them and carted them off and off they go. But you know, there's. I think it's certainly not something that only happens in in 1914, and the tools maybe are different, and maybe the is more legislation now sort of in the name of anti-terrorism which has been used to suppress protest but you know I think the the control and the fear of protest is very much the same
0: what about you we've talked a lot about uh, these women what about uh, this woman who has uh, found her way from Cornwall where the bright lights of Plymouth (laughs) were not enough to sustain you
1: um, that's right I mean I, I moved to London about 10 years ago and moved to Bow um, so it's really nice to be back here um, and now live a bit further out just past Stratford um, and yeah I, I, finding out about the suffragettes and their history in my local area was tremendously important to me I think as I found, I don't know I, I, feel, I feel like I've, I've put some roots down here and part of my decision to do that is about the history and it's, it's just a really incredible area
0: were they, this is going to sound like a facetious question, but it's really not. Uh, were they Cornish suffragettes?
1: Yeah, I think they were. I'm pretty sure. Again, this is outside the bounds of my research, but I'm pretty sure there was suffragette activity all over the country. Um, and it's not just confined to, to cities. It's in um, provincial areas as well. I mean, there was definitely women's suffrage, um, even if there wasn't suffragette, the kind of militant activity um, in Stratford, for example, well before the suffragette movement arrived in East London, there were there was a suffrage society. There were meetings, you know, and they they would do things like they would go to kind of council meetings and sort of ask impertinent questions about women's rights and things like that. So they they, they weren't you know setting things on fire, but but they were still quite bold and, and very well informed and very well organised.
0: Well, the the final th- mystery I've got to solve today is your Twitter profile seems to refer to ghosts and aliens or something what is going on there
1: Go, it's yes ghosts, robots and socialist suffragettes i'm having a bit of a personal branding crisis at the moment because <laughs> this this whole project about these under suffragettes is is very much outside you know my work it doesn't necessarily have a lot of overlap with some of my other interests and so uh, that's that's just reflecting my personal struggle to uh, get across all my different interests
0: what do you work at
1: um i work i manage the website for a charity which is where some of the robot stuff comes in i'm just quite interested in digital culture and I mean, how technology is changing our lives and changing our behaviours, those kinds of things. And robots are just cool as well.
0: I can't quite piece together a charity where robots would naturally come to mind. Should I, I, I sense you don't want to reveal this.
1: There are just kind of challenges, I think, in sort of the modern world, um, in separating out your sort of personal and professional identity. And the reasons you want to do that, I think, don't necessarily change. Um, but there is also something recently um, around the Lobbying Act... Um, which i don't know if you know much about that but it's it's it was passed um and the effect is to some extent to restrict charities ability to speak out on politically and speak out on political issues um and you know it's that wouldn't affect me particularly but it's just made me think again about maybe keeping you know some of my different various interests separate <laughs>
0: that makes a lot of sense it makes your life a nightmare then presumably because you've got these different categories going on that you're going to have to make sense of at some point but good luck with that i'm not gonna worry about that uh the book is east london suffragettes the two authors we should say sarah jackson and the absent today rosemary taylor who i believe is selling herself uh, somewhere in europe um does it sound bad
1: (laughs) Uh, i wouldn't say she was selling herself um
0: sunning herself (laughs) good god (laughs)
1: I was thinking that's a, that's a bit strong. Um, <laughs>
0: We've just set back some cause or other by m- many years. <laughs> and the publisher is?
1: Uh, the History Press.
0: And quite obviously, you'll want to get into your local East End bookshop to pick up a copy of that because it's all about the East End. While you're there, a copy of In Letters of mm-hmm. Gold by Rosemary Taylor, also a good bet. A final East End bit of trivia, suffragette nugget, anything you like to uh, finish us off with, Sarah Jackson.
1: Okay, it's one of my favourite... I mean, there's all kinds of um, stories of the suffragettes being arrested uh, at protests. Um, One of my favourites is um, one where a suffragette called Nora Smythe in East London was was drilling the People's Army, um, and she had a big bass drum and drumsticks and was marching up and down Roman Road um, drilling them. Um, They were stopped by the police. There was a a scuffle, um, and she was arrested, and in court she was charged with kicking a policeman in the shin and hitting him on the neck with her drumstick.
0: <laughs> Sarah Jackson, thanks very much. Thanks. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Sarah Jackson, thanks too to Rosemary Taylor, Mark Barr, and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. <laughs>